Welcome to The Common Rounds. Medical education for medical students by medical students. Welcome to our next episode. So we're moving more into the um, the arthritis topics that we had kind of alluded to in our previous talk. Yes. In our previous episode, we kind of gave a bit of an overview of some of the things that we're going to talk about. So have a quick listen. It's a very short episode, six minutes, I think, yes. or thereabouts. So have a quick listen of that if, if you like. Mm-hmm. But today we're going to talk about the seropositive um, arthritis conditions. Yes. Um, so there's going to be a few of them. And I think because of the length, we should just divide it into a series of topics, um, one each episode. Mm-hmm. Sound? That sounds great. And so which one do you want to dig into first? I think um, the one that everyone really is interested in is um, rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, and that's a common a, one. Yeah, yeah exactly. Common. And I think if we cover that, then we've covered a big chunk of what is often taught in medical school. Nice. Before we start though, Andy, we kind of alluded to it before, but what is what do we what do we mean by seropositive um, arthritis? Well, a seropositive arthritis just means the presence of a certain serological marker that comes up in yep. this particular um, disease. Mm-hmm. So somebody will just take some, um, do some tests, and yep. it will come back positive for some certain markers. Yep. And we'll talk about what these markers are. And the markers actually really, com- I found it really confusing because there's yes. a bit of crossover between the mm. pathologies that we're going to talk about and, and having these markers. Mm. But we've got some tricks to help you remember what, um, what occurs in what. Yeah, and um, definitely. So there's more than one marker in- involved and in yep. the presence of different markers suggests different diseases. So it can exactly. get quite complicated. And I have to admit, I'm, I'm still not quite yeah. fully understanding it everything about it exactly so come along and, and we can all uh, all learn together <laughs> yeah but in terms of seropositive um uh, arthritis the common examples i think what we're going to talk about over yes. the next few episodes is obviously rheumatoid arthritis yes. which is the topic of today mm-hmm. we'll talk about sle yes which everyone fears mm-hmm. and we'll also maybe talk about um Sjogren's? Sjogren's as well that's another important one that mm-hmm. keeps coming up which is awesome. important yeah but there are lots of other topics and i think it might be a bit out of the scope of what we're going to talk about mm. in terms of msk and rheumatology because some of them mainly affect let's say um uh, don't have really a, a huge joint manifestation may affect mm. the muscles and so forth but yes they they fall under the autoimmune exactly. spectrum of diseases yeah. maybe we'll come back to them when we do uh, the immunology topics as well mm. but um so we'll just cover the big three i think yep. that would be the way to go mm. so let's start with rheumatoid arthritis um and, and as we always do we like to define what yep. these conditions are mm-hmm. to get the mind in, in a correct place. So do you want to maybe define it? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a try. Yep. So rheumatoid arthritis has a chronic inflammatory component to it. It's a So it's a chronic inflammatory disorder that could affect the joints. Yeah. But also, interestingly, what I didn't know was it could affect a lot of other extra articular mm. tissues and yeah. organs. Yeah. So it's, it's an autoimmune origin that uh, disorder that affects the joints as well as yep. tissues and organs as well. And, um, and oh, how did I go? That was great. I think that so the whole point is it's a seropositive autoimmune yep. disorder. Mm. And unfortunately, the end game of this condition is mm. joint destruction mm-hmm. and colosis, which means um, bone fusing growth and fusing of the, yep. um, the bones. Yep. And also, this is in addition to some of the extra articular manifestations, which could affect the skin, it should, could affect the kidneys, the mm-hmm. lungs, and so forth. Yep. A lot of these conditions can also have extra, mm-hmm. you know, extra articular manifestations. Yes. Um, let's talk about the pathogenesis. I found this so interesting. Yeah. And, and it kind of, if you understand the pathogenesis, you kind of start to understand the drug targets as well, um, mm. in my opinion. So let's talk about what actually happens, right? So we know that it's an autoimmune disorder. Yes. We know that maybe, I think, CD4 T cells are, are a huge cause mm. of this. Okay, yeah. Are there any antibodies or, uh, or, or things involved in this sort of condition? Well, there are two main antibodies 
I think um, that are used for yep. test uh, testing when you when you look at this disease, right? Mm-hmm. So one would be this thing called rheumatoid factors, yep. and the other one would be this anti-CCP, yep. um, uh, which we'll go through. So rheumatoid factor, what I found out was that it's just a self-produced IgM antibody. That, or an IgA, I think. Yeah, well. Or IgA yeah. antibody that targets the FC portion of an IgG mm-hmm. antibody. So it's, a, it's essentially an antibody that targets an antibody. Yeah. So that's what rheumatoid factor is. And um, CCP is a citrullinated peptide that that the antibody is just targeting. And the citrullinated peptide, I think they just modify arginine residues into yeah, citrulline. Yeah, I think there's chemical reactions that modify arginine and mm. then is the term citrulline. Mm. And the citrulline, I think, is immunogenic for some reason okay. um, in nature. And so then the, hmm. that's probably why there is some issues with CD4s then being activated and yep. causing um, antibody production. Yep. But before we go too much into the antibodies let's talk about some of the key pathological steps that might be at play so i know that there's lots of t-cells t-cells are important in this yep and it's because the t-cells they produce certain cytokines that stimulate other inflammatory cells to come into Mm -hmm. the joint space that lead to the injuries for example right t helper one cells they produce in uh if and so interferon gamma yep. that activates the macrophages as well as other resident synovial cells mm. in the synovial joint. Yep. Um, and also I think another one comes to mind is the Th17 cells. They produce IL-17 yep. that recruits neutrophils and other monocytes to the area. Exactly. And mm. also things like TNF-alpha and interleukin that are produced from macrophages stimulate residential um, synovial cells. Mm-hmm. And these synovial cells then can secrete proteases mm-hmm. that begin to damage Line cartilage oh. and also TNF can um, recruit other cells as well. Yeah. What's interesting is that rank ligand, as we mentioned in our bone um, discussions, mm-hmm. yep. is also activated by, uh, is expressed on activated T cells. Huh. And these guys activate osteoclasts, which causes bone resorption. So you start damaging the bone as well. Wow. So it's not just limited to the cartilage, it can also extend into the bone as well. Yep. So, but what are some of the orders in which this can happen? I know there's probably a bit of a sequence as to, as to how this happens. Do you want to maybe go over that a little bit? Yeah. So initially, there are inflammation that is happening in the synovial membrane of, yep. the, um, of, the, of the joint space. Right, so of the of the joint membrane, you've got the synovial membrane that's mm-hmm. affected, and that can cause the synovial cells in that membrane to become hyperplastic yeah. and increase in proliferation. So they start to thicken. And then because of the inflammation and all those um, inflammatory markers that are happening at the time, the, there's this dense inflammatory infiltration that keeps on coming into that particular area. Yeah. And what happens after that? So once you get that dense um, in- inflammatory infiltration, that's when things get really messy because you're going to get T helper cells, B cells, plasma cells, dendritic cells, mm-hmm. macrophages, so all these phagocytes moving in. Yep. You can also expect some um, increased vascularity associated with the cytokines that are produced. Okay. And then you can have start to see these um, fibroprolent exudations being produced and, and then being expressed or moving into the synovium mm. and also the joint surface. Yeah. And as a consequence, over time, you start seeing some osteoclastic activity as well. Um, and then the, the synovium begins to penetrate into the bone mm-hmm. and you're going to get this periarticular. So periarticular means just next to the, just more slightly deeper to where the cartilage was, you start mm-hmm. seeing some bony erosions and this subchondral cyst formation. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately what happens is that you lose this beautiful, smooth articular surface mm-hmm. to these sort of villus-like structures that are, Mm. not as smooth and slightly rotten as well. There's a particular term that I came across, Andy, yep. and and, it, and the term is called these changes. Uh, I think these changes 
produce a, a, a thing that you see called the pannus. Yeah. Do you know much about that? So a pannus is essentially an inflamed granulation tissue or an yeah. abnormal layer of granulation tissue. And from the descriptions that we've been talking about, you mm. can kind of picture that this um, joint space, which we've described before in the past, this starts to become, it, it starts to cram up and yeah. you've got lots of things that are growing in there that's not meant to be there. Um, so the granulation tissue or this pannus infiltrates from the sides yep. of the membrane into the joint space in between the two articulating bones. Mm -hmm. They also start to erode away the beautiful cartilage and that really affects the functionality of the, of exactly. the joint. Yeah. And pannus, the, this abnorm abnormal layer of granulation tissue, this they contain a lot of other things that, that aren't that I guess good for the particular joint. They're, mm. they're quite oedematous. They've got lots of inflammatory cells. They've got fibroblasts that's in there, and and the fibroblasts themselves they can they can create like they can deposit these on the cart some other uh, I think fibrous cartilages mm -hmm. and other things like that. Yeah. That fuses the two articulating bones together, and that's yeah. called a fibrous ankylosis. Yeah. Once that's formed, you know, you, you can't really bend that particular joint anymore. Because it's, it's pretty much stiff, isn't it? It's yes. starting to become really stiff because of the fi mm. fibers being present. Mm. And I think over time, it ossifies, so it becomes more calcified. Mm. And that is re really a traditional bony fusion. So you mm. develop bony ankylosis. Mm. And we, we'll talk we've kind of mentioned ankylosis here but that deserves its own topic for mm. the future mm. but that's what happens here so this panis leads to this eventual bone fusion now if you see a patient yeah who would you say are the patient groups that are at risk of developing this condition okay from the way i think about it is that rheumatoid arthritis is a autoimmune disease mm -hmm. and from association wise I, I think in general, most females have a higher prevalence of autoimmune yeah. diseases than males. So uh, speaking from an epidemiological perspective, more females, uh, approximately a three to one ratio would mm. have, yeah. would be more likely to have rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. um, we'd also be looking at an adult population of around about 20 to 40 years old. Yep. Yeah, exactly right. And there are some risk factors, although it's not clear what really triggers the, um, the the condition from developing. There are some theories about potential environmental as well as genetic risk factors. You want to maybe mention what some of these genetic risk mm. factors are? So genetically speaking, I think they've also found a particular association with the HLA allele. So yeah, some, right. some say it's uh, DRB1 allele, but mm -hmm. I've also come across HLA DR4. Yep. Um, but yes, so probably there's something to look into there. But mm -hmm. yes, there's an HLA association. What do you think about environmentally speaking? So again, like the environmental risk factors are not known, mm. but we think that the, you know patients have a 50% genetic risk factor or genetic susceptibility to developing this, but another 50% has to be something else. Mm -hmm. And more often, it's obviously the environment. Okay. We think that uh, you know there's theories that um, in inflammation in itself, so conditions where you mean let's say you've had a recent infection let's mm -hmm. say you're you know you're smoking so your body's at an increased risk of um, being in an inflammatory state can lead to greater situation which we've mentioned before and then this can lead to the triggering of autoimmune disorders in patients who are susceptible already mm -hmm. so that's where the interplay between genetics and environment um, is important yeah but let's talk about the clinical manifestation because i think that's really interesting you have you can have such a varied sort of um, presentation yes Obviously, it's going to affect the joints, but how is it going to affect the joints? Mm. So clinically, so as somebody who presents with rheumatoid arthritis would typically present with a, a symmetrical presentation in the arthritic joints affected. Yeah. So it would happen on both sides of the body. Yes. And they typically affect small joints of the hands and feet, and there are particular joints that are more likely. From what I come across, it's the proximal interphalangeal joints and the metacarpal phalangeal joints, PIPs and MCPs. 
that's that's one of the few uh, one of the many actually one of the many joints that that could present with um, mm-hmm. uh, that rheumatoid arthritis typically presents with um, what else do you have in mind um, also in terms of other features related to it so mm-hmm. their patients may complain of really severe morning stiffness in the morning mm-hmm. so the joints are really sore and, and really difficult to move for about an hour and then afterwards as the joints as the movements improve the, the pain and symptoms reduce. Yep. But again, if they rest, the symptoms reoccur and can be severe as well. And now you can have complications following if a patient presents really late and they've had this condition for a while. There's some um, things that can happen. Mm. We already mentioned that you are likely to see some joint damage, mm. but that can lead to a loss of motion, instability, deformity of the joints, mm. and crepitus as well. Crepitus, I think, means when your joints really crack. Crack away. Um, crack and, yeah, and, yeah when, when they move. Mm. But in terms of joint deformities, there's a couple of classic examples, aren't there? Um, do you want to maybe mention them? Yeah. And so these guys, I think pictures are worth a thousand words, but, you know, we can try and describe them. Mm. So we've got like a swan neck deformity, which looks like, um, I think it's the proximal interphalangeal joints. They are flexed, wait, extended. Yep. Whereas extended. the um, distal interphalangeal joints are flexed. Yes. So that's where... The, the furthest part of the finger is actually trying to bend inwards, whereas... It looks like a hook. It does, actually. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really good way to describe it. It mm. looks like a hook. Um, whereas boutonnieres, that's another one that is um, that that is can be presented in mm. rheumatoid arthritis. It's kind of the opposite of what is happening, where the proximal interphalangeal joints are bent yep. and, or flexed, whereas the distal are extended. And so just have a look. You can have a look. Yeah, Those are two of the more clipped. Yeah, classical presentations of it. And I think actually these guys are the deformities that treatment is trying to prevent. Yeah. Because that is something that we're trying to avoid the long term uh, loss of mobility and function of these joints. Exactly. And also, in addition to some of the joint deformities, if the bone outgrows mm-hmm. the area, it could potentially impinge on uh, on nerves as well. So okay. it can cause um, neuropathies and, and symptoms associated with nerve impingement. Oh, okay, cool. But that's, I think, a whole topic on itself for when we do neurology. Yep. Um, now, what about some extra articular manifestations? Surely there's other things that can happen as well. Yeah. So in the skin, they they can cause a vasculitic um, problem. So, for example, it can cause cutaneous ulcers. Um, you can have palpable papura mm-hmm. or like you know, different types of rashes. Uh, they can affect the eyes. So you yeah. can get a bit of scleritis that happens. Um, and also they can affect other joints, uh, other places as well. But yeah. what, what other places do you have? So, there? you know, it can affect, it can affect a lot of organs. It can affect the lung, just like all the other rheumatoid conditions that uh, we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can get form, pulmonary fibrosis. You can get, um, neurological disorders, which we mentioned already. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you can get, um, renal dysfunction yep. because, you know, you're going to get these protein complexes depositing in the kidneys mm-hmm. and that can cause, um, glomerulonephritis, for example. But also, you know, in terms of skin conditions, you might also see um uh, rheumatoid nodules as well oh, yes. um, that that are present maybe around the elbows around the affected site mm. so the whole point is it can affect lots of different organs and so it's not just limited to the joints now what you know if, if you're suspecting a patient that is mm. having these symptoms what's there are some obviously uh, investigations that you can run yep. or clinical means of diagnosing and imaging yes. let's go through maybe some of the blood works first because mm. if you understand some of the blood investigations then we can talk through some of the other aspects as well yeah so the very when you when you do blood tests right you can order um you can test for the rheumatoid factor 
And so rheumatoid factor would typically pop up in rheumatoid arthritis. And as we mentioned, rheumatoid factor was a type of antibody mm. that had that was basically IgM or IgA attacking the FC portion or the, the handle portion of an IgG. Yeah. Yep. So that can pop up and it is very highly sensitive. Um, I don't think we've actually covered what sensitive and specific... Do you want to maybe mention I think it might we, be... We can, yeah. um, just in a few words, but I think it's really important to, to have a quick understanding of it. So sensitive is just referring to something that... If, if something's really highly sensitive, that means that it's very like... Wait, how? Actually... Yeah, how so if something is really sensitive, it? then yep. it's highly possible mm. and you're more confident that it's actually detecting something that is... So if a patient has a disease mm. and, it, and you're running a highly sensitive test, then it's likely mm. that this patient actually has a disease. Whereas yeah. specificity is about if a patient doesn't have the disease, you're going to be really sure if the test is really highly specific that they're probably not going to have the disease. Mm. So they're two different concepts. Yes. But the higher the sensitivity and the higher the specificity of a test, the better, the, the more confident you are at the mm. results that you're interpreting. Yes. So RF... You said that it has a high sensitivity. Yes, so it's great for um, it's great to rule in a uh, rule. It's great to rule out the disease. So, for example, if somebody pops up with the rheumatoid factor, then you can say that okay, that the person is likely it, it's more likely to be rheumatoid arthritis compared to somebody who had a negative rheumatoid factor, mm. um, because most cases of rheumatoid arthritis have rheumatoid factor in it. Yes, but the thing is that. Rheumatoid, the rheumatoid factor does not exclusively indicate that it is rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. Because, and that means that it's not, not very specific. It could be seen in lots of other conditions as well. Yep. Um, now, what about anti-CCP? I think that's another good... That's a test that both of them are run in tandem with each other. Mm. Um, and I think that's a high sensitivity test as well. And it's more specific than rheumatoid factor. So with that in mind, if, mm. you, if you run the two together, then you're more likely to be able to diagnose patients yes. with rheumatoid arthritis if they have, have these two um, antibodies, if they're positive for, for these two antibiotics. And also these rheumatoid factors are important for disease monitoring as well. So mm-hmm. in, a, in a period where the patient's disease is not well controlled, yep. you're likely to see inflammatory markers increase. Mm-hmm. So elevated CRP, elevated rheumatoid factor, and elevated ECR as well. Yeah. Um, what about imaging, Andy? Can, can you run some? Because obviously there's joint deformities involved. Can you see them on x-rays and things like that? Well, depending on the stage of the disease, you can um, different kinds of things will pop up on the x-ray. Yeah. So it might look normal initially at very early stages, but you could possibly see some soft tissue swelling mm-hmm. that, co- that is caused by the uh, synovial hypertrophy and other joint effusions mm-hmm. that's happening within the joint right um, later on you can possibly see loss of joint spaces uh, secondary to the cartilage erosions um, you can possibly see periarticular osteoporosis so osteoporosis yep. occurring around the joints mm-hmm. and um, then later on you will see start to see the bone erosions yeah. and, and deformities that are happening and and that's the these are the changes that you would want to try and prevent Exactly. So all putting all of these together, what's the clinical approach to diagnosis? I know there's a few ways of cl- classifying it. I think the EULR, mm-hmm. um, LAR, as well as the ACR criterion is often used. That's what was taught to us by our rheumatologist who um, uh, taught us this topic. So what would be some of the criteria to be able to diagnose um, rheumatoid arthritis? I think there's some clinical definitions. Yep. So um, 
just I just pulled up the Euler criteria in front of me and just reading off this particular table. You can try and have a look look mm. it up on the internet. But so it's basically looking. It's a set of criteria that give a certain point system yep. towards the um, diagnosis of it. And so if you accumulate more than six points from this particular table, then it is likely uh, then you're going to be defined as a um, yep. as having rheumatoid arthritis. Um, so there's a one thing you look at is the joint distribution. So whether if it's only affecting one joint, mm-hmm. two to ten joints, um, yeah, so these so large joints or like the or one to three small joints, etc., and they add up to a certain point system. Yep. Um, what else is on this? You can have a look at the serology that we've mentioned already. So whether yep. they're rheumatoid factor negative, um, uh, centrulin negative, mm. uh, or so forth, and you assign points to them. Mm. Can, um, yeah, yeah. What else? And they look at the system, uh, symptom duration. Mm-hmm. It's a chronic disease, so it should last more than six weeks. Yep. So that that also um, so it looks at whether if it's less than six weeks or more than six weeks. The acute phase reactants as yes. well. So we mentioned CRP and ESR as well. So mm. what happens is that all of these criteria are have assigned points, and if you add the assigned points together and they are equal or greater than six, you can assume that they've met the clinical criteria for um, for rheumatoid arthritis yeah so once you've diagnosed the patients um what are some of the goals and approaches to treatment now we had a chat and i think we're going to dedicate an entire topic on treatment yes but let's mention it for completeness in, in this episode yeah so we'll go into more detail but over and a brief overview of rheumatoid arthritis yep. treatment wise um so initial goals would be you want to control the disease activity you want to make the patient comfortable so mm-hmm. relieve pain and stiffness you want to try and maintain their function and lifestyle so the earlier we catch on the earlier we treat aggressively the more likely they're going to we're going to prevent further joint damage yeah. and thus maintain their function and lifestyle exactly um, and i think that's called yeah. the opportunity window or something where you want to go in really quickly treat them really well to mm. prevent the disease from progressing any um, further. correct me if i'm wrong with this one but like i think the the joint degeneration can actually occur really rapidly mm. in the first two years yeah. or so so yeah um it's not something that you can just you know take take it slow Watch and, and wait goes, sort of approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, what are some non-pharmacological approaches to, to managing these patients? Yeah. So usually exercise programs are, are prescribed um, and using assistive devices that if needed. But yeah, so these exercise programs could also include uh, aquatic exercises, yeah. um, aerobic exercises, some gentle, gentle... Uh, Range of motion sort of exercises yes. where you want to... Because remember how I said with moving your joints mm. it's going to help with the symptoms over time mm. so you just want to keep those regularly to maintain the tendons and the, and the musculature around the joints that support the joint structure itself yeah um what about pharmacological this is where it gets really interesting um mm. so you've got two approaches don't you you've got the disease modifying anti-rheumatic drugs yes so they're the, really the core of management and the revolutionized mm. approach of rheumatoid arthritis and then you also have symptomatic management right yes um, I think from my understanding, initially yep. what you need to do is so you need to treat them with NSAIDs and you need to treat them with steroids mm-hmm. to get the symptoms under control mm. whilst you give time for the disease-modifying agents to kick in mm. and to um, take effect. Yep. So let's talk about some of the disease-modifying agents. What's first line? Well, first line is meth- methotrexate yeah. and they're called disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs because when they discovered they, they actually prevented the d- the disease from actually developing the, mm-hmm. these um, joint deformities whereas previously the pain managements they, they don't do much no. to actually so NSAIDs prevent. don't stop and no. steroids don't actually, stop uh, so steroids don't stop yeah okay cool um, but yeah so methotrexate is one of the first ones that they found that uh, or the best ones that they that we're using mm-hmm. right now to 
um, to slow down this disease progression. Yeah. And so they are called DMONs, disease-modifying yeah. anti-rheumatic drugs. But I think the problem is it mm. takes 8 to 12 weeks for it to really kick in. So mm. that's why you need to use that stopgap measure of you know steroids and NSAIDs to bridge the patient over. Because you know, mm. they're still in pain mm. and they're still suffering. So it's, oh. you want to assist them with that. Cool. So what would happen, let's say, if the patient's been trialed for you know 3 to 6 months yep. on methotrexate mm. and methotrexate hasn't really mm. fully resolved their symptoms? Yep. So after three to six months of initial diagnosis, you'll come back and um, you'll get the patient to, you'll monitor the patient and yeah. see whether if, you know, their symptoms have gotten worse. Mm-hmm. Um, if you start to see these joint damages that are occurring on x-rays, etc. Um, and then you will start to add on additional treatments. Exactly. Yeah. So other DMARs, uh, so uh, from memory, was it something like with hydroxychloroquine? Yeah, hydroxychloroquine. Sulfasalazine, yep. leflunamide. Exactly. Um, how exactly you add them on? I'm not too familiar so with the... I think what you tend to do is yep. you either might consider reducing the dose of methotrexate and mm-hmm. then initiating these second-line agents at a reduced dose because, you know, mm-hmm. com- combinations can cause profound immunosuppression as well. Hmm. Um, so then you trial these patients on this for a period of time. Yep. If it still doesn't work, then you have a third-line option. And in Australia, this is typically third-line because of the costs involved. Oh, what so what, what are those third-line agents? Is Are you talking about biological? Yeah, yeah, the biologicals because they're so expensive and not mm. normally we can't... I think in maybe other healthcare systems, yeah. patients may initiate be initiated on those first, but in Australia, they're normally reserved for patients who have failed conventional treatments. Sure. So you have to actually demonstrate that they've trialed the traditional yeah. ones first before they can go into it. Exactly. What would be an example of them? So there's a few examples, and often they target the sort of the cytokines we mentioned earlier in our talk, yep. um, and particularly TNF, uh, a TNF alpha. And an yep. example of that is infliximab, mm-hmm. but there's also other newer targets as well. Yep. I think rituximab, which is a CD20, uh, anti-CD20, which we mentioned in our hematology um, uh, mm. block, can actually be used in really severe cases. Huh. Um and yep. often you initiate patients on this and then you re- assess them on, on how well they're going over the next three to six months. Yeah. I've just got a question for you. What would happen if the patient, uh, methotrexate is contraindicated for some, for one reason or another, if, if they have, you know, have liver dysfunction or mm. um, are really unwell and, mm. and can't go on methotrexate? What would be some other options? Yeah. So ideally we would want to start them on methotrexate, but in that case, leflunamide, could be one that you could um, yep. would be the alternative to start it with. Um, you can also try sulfasalazine or this other one, which is intramuscular gold injections. Yeah, I don't think that's very popular anymore. It used to be before um, biologics came on board, but not anymore. I think it's losing a bit of okay. a bit of favor. Yeah, and I think yeah, the whole point is that um, it's a stepwise approach. Yeah, um, you have to bridge the therapies with NSAIDs and steroids until methotrexate kicks in, mm-hmm. and if methotrexate doesn't work, you can add. An alternative DMARD, and if those fail, then your biologics are your next option. Yeah. One interesting point is that a lot of these drugs can cause liver dysfunction, so okay. it's very important to monitor the liver function yes. closely, especially as you initiate. And it's really important with methotrexate for it to be given weekly and mm. not daily, because oh, yes. I've seen patients when I've worked in the hospital, yeah, almost die as a result of you know misadministration of methotrexate given at high doses daily versus the mm. once a week, which is what it is. Yeah. Have you heard of them using folate? For rescue as well? To mm. reverse the effects yeah, of methotrexate? Yeah, or, or you know how some patients take methotrexate on, mm. let's say, a Thursday, and then mm. they take folate the next day? Oh, yes. Yeah. The, you... that, that's something that 
I, 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 when working in the community, commonly see people on. Yeah, mm. yeah. And the whole idea is to minimize the side effects of methotrexate by, mm-hmm. um, especially the gastrointestinal side effects, because folate yep. will rescue, mm. will protect those cells from the effects of methotrexate. Yep. Um, if you guys are not sure how methotrexate works, maybe look it up, but I'm sure we'll talk about it in our dedicated episode on DMARDs. Yep. Does surgery play a role in any, any of this because of the joint deformities? Well, they can be used to, uh, they can be indicated for a certain, structural joint damage mm. and so what you can do I, I think is that you can do some reconstruction possible yeah. tendon repairs joint replacements and and other other um techniques i think it's normally reserved for the really severe cases mm. um now how do we know this is a really important point because it could direct your treatment approaches as well patients that are at risk of development I mean, uh, who will have a poor prognosis to begin with Mm. There are a couple of key points that we need to keep in mind. Yeah. Let's quickly go over that before we wrap up. Yeah. Okay. So uh, a patient who has a younger age of onset uh, or an really old age of onset mm. are at a higher... Uh, uh, these guys are... At, Face poorer prognosis. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And um, females apparently yep, females. are also a, a poor prognostic uh, factor. Um, this one was... Uh, this. So low level of education or poverty or psychosocial problems indicate poor prognosis. And I, I suspect that it's more to do with um, understanding the importance of and, and how to actually look after yourself when once you're on um, on these DMARDs and other yeah. treatments to prevent the progression. And engaging probably with non-pharmacological approaches as well. Mm. I think the more joints you have involved, the worse your prognosis is. Mm-hmm. If your inflammation, inflammatory state has been really uncontrolled, so you have persistent elevations in your CRP and ESR, mm-hmm. or you actually have established uh, joint damage mm. or disability associated with the disease, they're mm. really bad. Are there any anything else that could dictate poor prognosis? Uh did you mention this? Oh, sorry. You mentioned the CRP and ESRs. Yep. 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 So there's nodules yep. and, and vasculitis as well, or extraarticular disease, which means mm. that your disease is quite uncontrolled. Mm-hmm. Um, and also if you have high tide as a rheumatoid factor and um, cyclic citrinated peptides as well. Yeah. I think that's it in terms of poor prognosis. Yes. I, I think you did cover mo- um, yeah. most of the poor prognosis factors, yeah. Are there anything else you want to add before we No, I, I, Sorry, I was lost in thought just then because I, I just remembered that... Um, so one of the other things, uh, just going back to a bit of the methotrexate part, was that um, since most of since rheumatoid arthritis typically presents in females, I think that was a lot of these treatments need yes. to be um, you need to, and also they present in women of around twenty to forty years old. So age. exactly, yeah. so the um, possibility of pregnancy also is mm. another factor that you need to consider. Yeah, exactly. So, so, yeah, that that was just what That's I was right. thinking of just then. And I think what mm. they told us, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in our demand topic mm. is that you tend to cease methotrexate mm. have a period of washout and mm. then the patient will, can attempt to get pregnant Ooh. and you know how pregnancy is associated with it it's a sort of a immunosuppressive state mm. right so the disease actually improves during pregnancy so that they can mm. continue without too many issues yeah but once they um, give birth mm. then the disease will come back because that infant you know the pregnancy sort of effect on the immune system is then taken away yeah but yeah it's really important because um it can be teratogenic and, and it can cause you know fetal uh, it's an uh, embryo site so yep. yeah that's a really good point mm. um so guys that's a really big topic but um and if you have any questions or suggestions yeah just let us know we should have notes up for this in the next couple of weeks so um yeah visit the website um uh, for further information mm. thank you for listening
Our episode today was put together by our executive producer Gautam and our core editor Cindy. For notes, elective experiences, and much more study resources, visit our website on thecommonrounds.wordpress.com or visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. If you like our episodes, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It means a lot to us. You've been listening to The Common Rounds. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.